0: Turn, turn to your Bibles to John 12. Okay, we're making our way through John's Gospel. Made it to John 12, Chapter 20. Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. The feast the holiday of Passover they came to Philip who was from Bethsaida in Galilee with a request sir they said we would like to see Jesus what a request does that burn in your heart sir we would like to see Jesus Philip went to tell Andrew Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus and Jesus replied the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified Truly, truly, I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces life. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. And my Father will exalt the one who serves me. Now my soul is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. It was for this very reason that I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. And the crowd that was there who heard it said it it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken. Jesus said, this voice was for your sake, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. The crowd spoke up. We have heard from the Torah that the Messiah will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? You can be seated. Okay, so if you remember, just by way of review, so much of the remainder of John's Gospel is going to be done with uh, Passover, this Jewish holiday in the background. And this holiday is approaching. And God instructed for this holiday. He's like, I want to celebrate it at my house in Jerusalem. So I don't care where you're living. I want you to travel. Um, so Jews from all over the world are descending upon Jerusalem. They're preparing uh, for this holiday. And Passover is a holiday that's all about a lamb. Every family had to carefully select the best lamb from their, from their possession and bring it into their home for four days. Maybe similar for us as Christmas and us picking a Christmas tree and, and bringing it into our house. I don't know if this is coincidence, but the day that the lambs were brought into their homes is also the day when Jesus enters into Jerusalem. And if you were here last week, Jesus enters Jerusalem. He asks for a a donkey, actually a baby donkey. He rides down the Mount of Olives, which is called the Hill of Anointing, because all the kings uh, were anointed at the base of this hill, and they're anointed with the oil, uh, the olive oil, from this hill, which is also why the hill was called Messiah Hill, because Mashiach means the anointed one. And the prophet Zechariah also has this prophecy Attaching Messiah to the Mount of Olives, uh, Zechariah tells us that his feet will stand on the top of that hill as the judge of the world judging the nations. And that's why every Jew wants to be buried on this hill. In fact, let me show you this hill today, the Mount of Olives. Um, It's right outside of Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Uh, If your eyes are like mine and you're looking at it and you can't see very well, you're like, is that a snow-covered hill? Uh, No, that is not snow. Those are all graves. This is the most prestigious place for a Jew to be buried on the Mount of Olives. Why would they want to be buried there? And and they've been buried there going back even hundreds of years before Jesus. Prophets have been buried there. Zechariah, who gave this prophecy, is buried on the Mount of Olives. They want a front row seat. Well, Messiah places his feet on that hill and judges the world. Uh, they want a front row seat to that. And I think it's appropriate that Zachariah is ba- buried on this hill because not only is he the one who prophesies this, but he is also the one who tells us you're going to know it's Messiah because Messiah is going to come to you riding, not just on a donkey, but on a ba- baby donkey. So just put yourself there. Jesus gets to the top of this hill with his disciples, and he says, "Go get me a baby donkey." And we think, oh, how cute, how humble of Jesus. He wants to ride in on, on a baby donkey. This is probably the boldest statement Jesus makes about who he is. He is telling everyone, because they know their text, he is the king. He is the judge of the world. And he is here. That's why the the, the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders that are watching this in the verse right before ours in verse 19, it says, so the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Something way bigger than Passover is going on. There is a bigger game in town. And our text begins with, some Greeks were there. Well, what's a Greek doing at a Jewish holiday? Well, the two fastest growing religions at this time, the fastest was emperor worship. Hail Caesar. Heil Hitler. <laughs> because those those two things have a lot in common. The Empire of Rome and Nazi Germany. Very similar. Fastest-growing religion, the worship, the worship of the emperor. The second fastest-growing religion is Judaism. For instance, in this Greek city of Aphrodisias, um, archaeologists uncovered a synagogue, like they've uncovered synagogues in almost every city uh, of that time. Uh, but this synagogue had a unique artifact. And it's, it's, it's this the stele or this this pillar, because on this pillar are the names of everyone who belonged to that synagogue in the first century. The first half of the names are all Hebrew names. But then there's a clear break with a title, Theosibius, which means God-fear, and then the next half are all Greek names. Now, a god is a Gentile convert to Judaism. And I know this is just one synagogue. But half of those who belong to this synagogue are Greek converts. We get a little flavor of this in Acts chapter 2. Um, I know this is Pentecost, but Pentecost is also one of those major holidays where Jews had to show up at God's house in Jerusalem. And it's listing Jews from all over the world, from Parthia, um, Cappadocia, Pontius, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt. And then look what it says, both Jews and converts to Judaism from Rome. I don't know, that just fascinates me. It shows me how God is preparing the world and how the whole world is coming to Jesus and how they're going to all go back to their world and tell their world about this Jesus. What also fascinates me is that in this sex-saturated, greed-infested, power-driven world, Judaism, which is dispersed in every city of the ancient world, it was a breath of life. Its worship of the one true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, stood in stark contrast to the perverse nature of Hail Caesar and the sensual, superstitious Worship of the Greek and Roman gods. And so these Greek converts show up at at Passover. The ripple effect of Jesus has reached their ears. They say, we want to see Jesus. Again, this is a small example of how the whole world is going to Jesus. And notice who they find. They find one of Jesus' 12 disciples named Philip. (laughs) Philip is the second most popular Greek name in the first century, second only to Alexander. Why? Because Alexander is named after Alexander the Great, the greatest Greek, and his father was Philip. Very popular name. So it makes you even wonder about Philip. But they come to him, and Philip tells Jesus, and Jesus says, okay, some Greeks want to meet you, and for some reason... This triggers in Jesus' mind, my hour has come. And if you've been paying attention throughout John's gospel, Jesus keeps on saying, My hour has not yet come, my hour has not yet come, my hour has not yet come. But now Jesus says, My hour has come. What is this hour? This hour that is constantly on Jesus' mind. Well, he says it in the text. It's the hour of his glory. It's the hour of his glory. It's it's when Jesus, the light of the world, is going to shine like the sun, not as the moon reflecting the sun, but as, as the actual sun in its brightest, most intense brilliance. That's the hour of Jesus' glory. That's why Jesus says in verse 28, He says, It was for this very reason that I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. I mean, the whole story of Jesus coming across all worlds, incarnating Himself in our world, is for this hour of glory. In fact, right before He is going to be arrested, And then tried, um, and we're going to look at this in John 17, he prays a long prayer. And that prayer begins with these words, after Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and he prayed, Father, the hour has come, glorify your son, that your son may glorify you. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world began. This hour is all about glory. Glory. Father, may I put your full glory on display in this hour. So what is this hour? When is this hour? Well, Jesus describes that in this text, and he's going to use a technical term that I think gets lost on us a little bit. In verse 23, he says, the time has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, I don't know if you know this, but Son of Man is Jesus' favorite term to use about himself. He personally calls himself the Son of Man 12 times in John's gospel. And if you want to do the homework, your own homework and study on this, you will be blown away at the times that he chooses to call himself the son of man. But let me start with this, by by telling you what the term meant to Jesus' world, because this meant a lot to them. Because I think to us, we just kind of think it's a poetic, kind of humble way for Jesus to talk about himself, but it's really quite the opposite, because there wasn't a higher messianic title than the title of son of man. Because there are so many messianic references in the Old Testament that speak of Messiah as this Davidic king, a king like David who would free Israel from its enemies and and restore Israel back to God. But these messianic texts remain a little bit local and provincial, and there are other messianic texts that come and blow this concept up. Not that they are wrong, but they're far too small. And Daniel 7 is the premier text that just shatters this notion that Messiah is just going to be this local, provincial king. Because Daniel's given a vision of these three beasts, these beasts who are bringing horrific chaos and violence to the earth. Now, remember, a beast, uh, when it's used in the Bible, symbolizes world rulers who wield all this power. They're drunk on power. Revelation speaks of two beasts, one from the land, one from the sea. Daniel sees three beasts, but then he sees a fourth, and he says the fourth beast is so powerful that it controls the three beasts. And it unleashes an even greater terror and death upon the world. Daniel says, he says, I couldn't take my eyes off the fourth beast because of its loud boasts. But then Daniel says, as I watched, the beast was slain. Who slayed the beast? Well, Daniel says, he says, I looked. And there before me was one, like a son of man. There's that title. Coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days. He was led into his presence. So you have to envision this Son of Man. He's departing earth for heaven, going through the clouds, entering the throne room of God. And it's like God takes out his sword and knights him for slaying the beast. And then God says, He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. That's who the son of man is. So when Jesus says, I am the son of man, he is saying this text is about me. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And I'm the one who's come to slay the beast. And I'm the one who will one day ascend through the clouds and sit at the right hand of God in his throne room. And I think it's important that we have this in our minds because as we go through the rest of John, we're going to see the humanity of Jesus, his his vulnerability, his, his weakness. But may we never minimize him. May we never reduce him to a good moral example or a righteous teacher because that is not who Jesus claims to be. Jesus claims to be the king of the world. The king. And I even know my own heart, it can get so casual sometimes with Jesus. And sometimes we, 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 we pick and choose the verses about Jesus in the Bible that we like, and we put them together so we can form our own idea about who Jesus is, but we end up just making Jesus in our own image. And I promise you that when we finally see him, because we will look him face to face in the eyes, think about that, there's a day when we're going to see Jesus. When we see Him, I promise you he will blow up everything we've ever thought about him, even our grandest thoughts of Him. He will be far more. He'll be far greater. He'll be far pure. Like in Revelation 1, when, when John sees Jesus in all his glory, he says, "I fell down like a dead man." In Everyone, when they see him, will do nothing but bow. And if they can say anything, it'll be holy, 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 is the Lord God Almighty. He is the Son of Man. If Jesus is the Son of Man, Who or what is the beast? Is it Rome? Caesar? Well, Caesar is likely a manifestation of the beast. But it's anything that sets itself up against Christ. It's anything that sets itself up against the word of Christ. The people of Christ. The way of Christ. The kingdom of Christ, it's as John says in his letters, an antichrist. But even all those flesh and blood realities and personalities are not the beast, or at least the fourth beast, that the Bible has in mind. Look at verse 31 of of our text. Jesus says, Now is the time for the judgment on this world, and now the prince of this world will be driven out. There's your fourth beast the prince of this world. The Old Testament calls him Hasatan, he's the accuser. And this is one thing because we live right now in a world at war that we have to remember because so many Christians, I feel, are fighting the wrong battle. As Paul says, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and the rulers and the powers of this dark world. That's the fourth beast who's wreaking havoc on our world and is behind all the chaos And while this beast still roams our world and still unleashes war upon Christ and his kingdom with all his minions and the flesh and blood people, the pawns that are in his hands, who too can be very beastly, from emperors to dictators to powerful elites, but this fourth beast has been defeated. And right now, the battle that we fight is a winning battle because the son of man has descended and he has come to earth and he has delivered a death blow and then he ascended and he has been knighted as the supreme authority. He won. And see, this is why those early Christians, they didn't fear death. They didn't fear Caesar. They didn't fear Rome, even though Caesar and Rome waged deadly war against them. Because what burned in their hearts is that Jesus, Jesus won. He won. How did Jesus win? Because that's the question. The answer to that question is so stunning. I don't care if you've heard it a thousand times and this is the thousandth and first time that you're hearing it. It should literally take your breath away. It should cut you to the heart. Every time you hear it, it should fill our minds with wonder and amazement. That's how Jesus won This is the hour that Jesus is talking about. This is, it's the hour of his death. As Jesus said in verse 23, it's when the Son of Man will be lifted up and glorified. You know, that high priestly prayer that Jesus prays right before he dies or before he's arrested in John 17, which I've already alluded to, I, I, for the, my whole life, I misinterpreted what Jesus was saying. Um, I, I always thought that he was saying, God, when this is all over, would you please restore to me the glory that I had with you before this all began, please? But if you look carefully, that is not what he's praying. He's praying, in this hour, Father, may your glory be on its fullest display. May I, in this hour, shine forth your radiance with a brilliance too beautiful to behold. That's why Jesus says in our text in verse 32, he says, when I am lifted up, this way I will draw all people to myself and it's not the first time he said this he also said this earlier to Nicodemus he said the son of man that's one of those 12 times where he talks about him as the son of man uh, the, the, the one with all the authority this king who is to come he says the son of man must be lifted up like Moses pinned that snake to a pole and lifted it up And there are strong hints of the lifting up in the text, the prophets. Isaiah gives us probably the clearest one in Isaiah 52. uh, This is the intro to everything Isaiah is going to say in 53, which is probably one of the greatest messianic texts there is. But uh, this is an intro to it. He says, see, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. And just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being, his form marred beyond human likeness. That's how he'll be lifted up. Why do you think Jesus in our text is saying, my soul is deeply troubled? He's in deep agony thinking about the hour. Now listen, this hour is not something where Jesus is a victim of Rome or religious leaders. He purposed this hour, planned it before the creation of the world. Because I think to myself, what person purposes or plans something like this for themselves And we're not even talking a person. We are talking God, the king of the universe. God has put himself in this place where he says, my soul is deeply troubled. This place of utmost vulnerability and weakness of of deep agony. Agony. And I think of those Greeks who say, I want to see Jesus. We want to see Jesus. Do you want to see him? Do you really want to see him? Well, here he is. This is your God. This is how God does power. Think about it. The one who's been given all authority, all power, gave it all up. how he does power he won by losing he triumphed through defeat who do you know that does power this way who comes to your mind and listen before we get all judgmental about kings and dictators and politicians today Do you know how much power God has given you? He has given you enormous power. He has made you in His image. Think about everything He's entrusted to you physically, materially, relationally. Think about your family, your friends, your circles of influence, your life, your story. Even think about the power of your words. How do we exercise our power? Do we use it to leverage, to control, to posture, to threaten, to use others to serve ourselves, to cut others down, to exalt ourselves? Look at them. Or think about how Jesus does glory. Let's not forget, the psalmist is right when he says in Psalm 19, "...the heavens declare the glory of God, day after day they pour forth such speech." I mean, he made this world, and the stars, and the galaxies, and everything that is made, it declares the glory of God. But according to God, nothing declares his glory more than this hour of glory. And this isn't just the humility of God and the suffering of God. It's the humiliation of God. It's the death of God. It's the defeat of God. And God says, yep, that's me in my most stunning display of my glory. Again, who does glory this way? And we spend our whole lives thinking, how can can I move up? How do I get more? We strive to be noticed. We strive to be unique and original, to stand out. We strive to be happy. We strive to be liked, to gain, to get things. We strive to be in control. Think about all the ways that we promote ourselves, show ourselves off, put ourselves on display for the world to see, all the ways that we exalt ourselves, make a name for ourselves. It's like God's making a mockery of all those things. It's like he's making a mockery of the way we promote and put ourselves on display, the way we do power and glory. But there aren't words to describe this. I, 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 I just tried so hard this week. Words don't do justice to this. Words can't explain this. I can try. The greatest became the least. The most exalted one in the universe became the most humbled. The most beautiful, all beautiful one became so disfigured and marred. The one who created every living thing became a single cell, a single seed, and that seed went into the ground and it died. And through its death, produced life. And this isn't just who God is. This isn't just getting to the heart of his heart and his character and his essence. But this is how God restores. This is how God repairs, how he redeems, how he heals. And we sung this morning, Lord, you're my healer. And this is how he heals. By his wounds, we are healed. And see, this is why in the Bible, redemption and suffering are always paired together. It's why resurrection and death are always paired together. Because God has hardwired this principle into the fabric of the universe that unless a grain of wheat goes into the ground and dies, it remains only a seed. But if it dies, it bears fruit. It brings life. Yet, to our world, things like weakness and shame, humiliation, suffering, and defeat are just entirely scorned. I mean, all these realities are are, are such a waste to the world and, and to be avoided at every cost. But these are the very realities, the very means, the agents, how the God of the universe restores and repairs, reconciles, redeems, and resurrects. Do you know this? Do you know this, God? And this is why God says, this is our finest hour, the hour of my glory. Do you know this, God? Do you see this, God? Like those Greeks, do you even say, I want to see Jesus? Well, you can't accept someone you haven't seen, and you can't really believe in someone you don't know. And you can't say, I accept Christ and not go his way. A disciple is someone who learns to walk like Jesus and walks the path that Jesus walked. Which is why Jesus applies this whole idea of the seed going into the ground and dying, not to himself, but he is. But he applies it to us. In verse 25 and 26, he says, anyone who loves their life will lose it. Anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, my servant will also be And my Father will exalt the one who serves me. It's God's way. Because with God, the way up is to go down. The way to wholeness is through emptying yourself. The way to power is by giving up power, by becoming weak. The way to get rich is to give it away. The way to be really happy is to not even try to be happy, but to live to make other people happy. The way to find yourself is to lose yourself. The way to life is through death. And some of us right now are thinking about leaving our spouse. May I ask, may I I ask, on what basis can you do this to your family? Well, you say, well, it's for me. I want to do something for me. I want to live my own life. It's a time for me to be happy. Do you hear yourself? Or some of you are wondering if you should take your spouse back. I deserve a lot better than this. On what basis do you deserve better? Some of you are are, are losing everything that you've worked for and you're bitter and you're angry And you're saying, I worked hard for this. I deserve more than this. On what basis? Some of you are taking revenge on people who have hurt you. On what basis? Some of you are living recklessly and selflessly, selfishly. And you're trying everything you can under the sun trying to make yourself happy I say on what basis some of you are rebelling right now because life hasn't gone the way you wanted it or you, the way you think it should go I say on what basis some of you always have to win you always have to win every argument you have to be right about everything on what basis On what basis can we be jealous? On what basis can we gossip? On what basis can we complain about anything? On what basis can we promote ourselves and exalt ourselves? On what basis can we do anything for ourselves if we are truly in Christ? Because when the gospel confronts us and Christ comes into our life. He will always confront us to go down, to go down, to give up, to empty ourselves of self, to humble ourselves. Or as Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, when Christ calls a man or a woman, he bids them to come and to die. That's the invitation. But when we do, when we go down like Christ, we will be exalted like Christ. <laughs> when we lose our life, we will find it. When we empty ourselves of self, we will find our true self. When we suffer and die like Christ, we will be raised anew like Christ. Unless the grain of wheat falls into the ground, it remains only a seed. But if the seed dies... It will bear much fruit. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would open the eyes of our heart to truly see you, to not minimize you, to see you in all your glory, all your greatness. And to see, God, what you did and how you did what you did for us. And God, as we prepare our hearts right now to take communion, God, may your spirit open the eyes of our heart to see you so that we would bow before you and love you and worship you and follow you. In Jesus' name.